two weeks ago uh, today was Super Bowl Sunday. It seems in some ways that it's been a lot longer than two weeks, uh, but uh, fun times as we, many of us got together and were able to watch uh, the Super Bowl game. I, I don't know how much watching went on. There, there's some, some people were watching the game and then a lot of talking and eating, and, uh, but it, it was a close game. And so throughout the game, you know, at first, I think the Bengals were up and uh, asked Samuel at the beginning, you know, who he was going to root for. And he said, well, I'm just going to kind of watch and see. And um, I think after the Bengals scored, is that when you said I'm going for the Bengals? Maybe I have it wrong. But uh, anyway, so it wasn't real, you know, who's going to win? But the Bengals in the end lost. The LA Rams towards the end of the game uh, had a strong drive uh, down the field, scored a touchdown and left uh, the Bengals uh, with a, a very sad Super Bowl loss. So Matthew Stafford was uh, certainly a, a star player, not only in the season, but in that game as quarterback for the L.A. Rams. But I didn't realize until last Sunday, so a week after Super Bowl, uh, something that also happened with Matthew Stafford that uh, wasn't quite so positive. And Wednesday following the Super Bowl, they were having a celebration. Some of you may have seen this clip um, on, uh, on, on the news or on YouTube or whatever, but uh, the Wednesday following, uh, so the 16th, there was a Super Bowl celebration. The L.A. Rams were there. Uh, Matthew Stafford and his wife Kelly were there and had their cell phone. And then a, the Rams photographer, at least one of the photographers for the Ram, um, named Kelly Smiley. Isn't that a pretty cool name for photographer? You know, so Kelly Smiley is a photographer for the Rams and was there on the stage, you know, with, uh, with Matthew and his wife, Kelly. And she offered to take a picture of the two of them with their cell phone. So she took, the, took their cell phone and then she began to back up to take the picture. And to the horror of those watching, she fell off the stage. But what was worse and what thousands have seen since then is unfortunately, Matthew Stafford, the quarterback's immediate reaction was to turn around, walk away, and take a sip of water instead of going to help the photographer who fell. She fractured her spine in the fall. In contrast, Matthew's wife, Kelly, immediately when she saw uh, the fall, moved forward to check on her and to offer help. So you, you, you saw two very different reactions. And I don't know who got the video clip of that, but it's been seen uh, many, many times, I'm sure. And, uh, and we watched it at home um, in, in a challenging way to see that reaction. But let me ask you this. How often do we as Christians, do we as brothers and sisters in Christ see someone that is falling or maybe has fallen and we turn around and walk away. In this passage, James is saying that it should never be the case. In fact, he says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Just three days ago, uh, Matthew Stafford issued a public uh, in an inter- interview, <clears throat> kind of a public uh, statement that he had apologized. And even prior to that, news came out that they were going to cover uh, medical bills for, for Kelly Smiley. And, and hopefully, we're all uh, sinners and we all make mistakes. So hopefully, this will be a learning 
thing for Matthew Stafford and that um, and and he'll grow as a as a man uh, and an individual uh, to show mercy and to show grace. So the main point is not to put him down, but to help us learn from that. Of you know, we see that and immediately uh, many of us the first reaction would be like, I I can't believe he did that. I can't believe he just turned around, walked away, and then just sipped some water as if, oh, you know, just fell off the stage. But yet as Christians, so often, as we see others who are struggling in their faith, as we others see others who are giving in to temptation and wandering from the truth, many times the temptation for us is turn around, walk away, and maybe hope that somebody else will check. Somebody else can, can check in. Let's look at the passage and see James' challenge for all of us. Uh, again, in James chapter 5, 19 and 20, I'm going to hopefully throughout the course of this morning answer a few questions. The first question is this. Who needs to be pursued? Who needs to be pursued? So let's look at that. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth... Someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back, notice, a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So he need, who needs to be pursued? Well, those who stray from biblical truth. Those who stray from biblical truth. Now let me make it clear, and the Bible is clear about this too, that church culture truth what we often think about maybe as church culture truth and the norms for a specific group aren't the standard. Many of us have come from different backgrounds, I'm sure, but I've been involved in some uh, circles in my life where some might consider, you know, oh, you know, if they're wandering from the truth, so there's been times in my life where I would have been in organizations or areas that this might be considered a, oh, the, 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 the girl is wearing pants. And so she's straying from the truth and we need to, you know, she's, she's wrong and we need to pursue that. Well, that's more of a church culture thing than it is biblical truth. So first of all, we need to understand the differences of preferences and spiritual preferences and showing grace uh, to one another and determine, is this individual really straying from biblical truth or are they exercising some spiritual liberty and some preferences that we may hold you know, as very important as a church culture? You may all remember towards the beginning of our church plant, we used the triangle in the different places of the gospel, the church, and the world. And how sometimes we can put church culture at the top of the triangle. And we can let church culture dictate what the gospel really means and how it's played out. And church culture then also uh, influences the world only so much as the world's willing to adapt to just our church culture. But we saw biblically that really the gospel or biblical truth should be at the top. And biblical truth and the gospel then should impact and influence and teach and guide the church. So that then the church can influence in a gospel way and in a biblical way the world. So we see here anyone who wonders from the truth. This isn't church culture truth. 
It isn't, you know, a preference. It isn't a music uh, preference, like Christian music preference. There's certainly wicked music and sinful music, but this isn't just a Christian music preference. It's not just a Bible version preference. It's not just a address preference. This is a biblical truth standard, and that's what we see next. The biblical truth is the standard. All throughout the book of James, we've been looking at characteristics of authentic faith. What are some things that that should mark an individual that has authentic faith? I'll review these. We're not going to read all the verses, but I'm just going to try to catch the the, the highlights um, that we've used mainly as kind of sermon titles through the series. In James 1, dealing with trials joyously. James 1, 12 through 18, overcoming temptation. Being changed by the word of God in James 1, 19 through 27. Treating others without partiality in the first part of James 2. Living out an active faith. Not a dead faith, not a faith without works, but an active faith in James 2, 14 through 26. James 3, controlling the tongue. It's biblical truth. Pursuing heavenly wisdom in James 3, 13 through 18, instead of worldly wisdom. James 4, 1 through 6, recognizing spiritual warfare. Drawing near to God in James 4. Trusting in the master planner, also in James 4, 13 through 17. Remember the, we're going to do this. We're going to go to this city and make a profit and do this or that. And James 4, 13 through 17 says, no, you should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. So trusting in the master planner. James 5, 1 through 6, avoiding the trap of ungodly wealth. Living in the United States of America and pursuing the American dream, it's very, very easy to fall into the trap of pursuing ungodly wealth. Wealth in of itself is not sinful. It can be a phenomenal tool to advance the gospel of Christ, and we can enjoy the comforts of wealth in a Christ-honoring way, but to avoid ungodly The pursuit of ungodly wealth is authentic faith. Facing suffering with patience in James chapter 5. Those in James who had been, that James was writing to, who had been scattered abroad, some suffering persecution, it, it appeared, and facing suffering with patience. Developing a commitment to prayer. Praying individually. You know, it James chapter 5 says, if anybody's suffering, let him pray. If anybody is is rejoicing, then, then let him sing praises. If anyone is sick, and we looked at that, maybe that also can mean, or maybe primarily even means weak spiritually, let him call the elders to come and pray. And then even after that, it says, let everyone pray for one another. So corporately, we're praying as a group. So a commitment to prayer. And then we see today being messengers of reconciliation. That's just in one book. So there's all, there's all types of biblical truth, but that has to be our standard and not a church culture preference. So who do, we, who do we pursue? Well, somebody who is wandering, straying from that which is clear biblical truth. We see also letter B that those who are carnal Christians. So somebody's straying from the truth. There's a couple possibilities. One, they could be still believers, but it could be that they're carnal believers. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. You may remember that the church in Corinth was not your model church. 
The church in Corinth did not, uh, you know, have, uh, they weren't hosting model church growth conferences for people to come in and observe and learn, you know, this is how a biblical church functions. No, the, the Corinthian church was problematic. A lot of things going on that were not pleasing to Christ. And notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants, but notice this, in Christ. He's referring to them as brothers, but yet he says they're You can't refer to them as spiritual people as like mature, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So there's certainly times where we as believers can be carnal. We can be acting in carnal ways. It should not be the the, uh, trajectory long-term of our life, but there can be seasons, there can be weeks, months, possibly even some years where our, our path is down a carnal and fleshly path. So it could be that we're, we are to pursue, or the person that we're pursuing, it could be that they are a carnal Christian. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, in parenting, is discipline important? Talk to me a little bit. Is discipline important in parenting? It is. But just because discipline is important, does that mean that I, as a parent, should just randomly, at at any given time, just show or, or, or exercise discipline to my children just because, you know, it's good for them. Even if they're not doing wrong, but, you know, there's times where it's just going to build character, so I'm going to discipline you. What do you think? No. That would create anger. That would foster more rebellion. So we see in Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Well, why does he discipline? He disciplines those who are belong to him because they're erring, they are wandering in ways from the truth. They're not living in a consistent pattern in a Christ-honoring way. And, and the, the promise that we see in Hebrews 12 is that Christ will discipline. We don't always know when, and our time frame isn't always God's time frame, but he will discipline those whom he loves. So as we're becoming disciples or followers of Christ and helping others to grow as followers of Christ, this pursuit for Christ-likeness happens or should happen on an ongoing basis. As we're together trying to give glory to God the Father, we're part of the family of God. We, We talk about being brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're to pursue then those who may be carnal Christians. Now, we don't always, and we're going to look at this in a minute, we don't always know, are they carnal Christians or are they fake Christians? I don't have a spiritual x-ray, and neither do you. So initially, we see somebody wandering from the truth. We don't have to know right at that moment, well, are they carnal Christians or are they fake Christians? Well, they're wandering from the truth. They were among us. James says, if anyone among you 
So as God puts people on our path and they're among us, and then they begin to wander from the truth, then that is our responsibility to pursue those people in love and be messengers of reconciliation. But not only carnal Christians, we also see those who are fake Christians. Those who are fake Christians. James 1.22 talks about those who are hearers only. Those who are double-minded. Those who are hearers only, not doers of the word, but just hearers. You know, we have limited knowledge. There was a a pastor in the area of Junjai that uh, pastored a fairly large church, in fact. But he claimed that he had special gift from God and that he could automatically determine who, anybody, if they were a genuine believer or not. I mean, he could just tell right away. That's not biblical. It is biblical that Christ says, you shall know them by your fruits. So we, we are to be fruit inspectors to a certain extent. But once again, we see in Scripture that there are carnal Christians for a time. So in that time frame, are we able to say, oh, yeah, absolutely, you are a fake Christian. No, we have limited knowledge. I don't know oftentimes. If I'm counseling someone, I will challenge them and I'll take them back to Scripture and I'll say, listen, Scripture says that you should bear fruit. If you're a believer, you should be bearing fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, you should be experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then you should see God disciplining you in some ways. These are some evidences that you are a child of God. But I can't sit across the table or stand next to someone and say, I absolutely will tell you that you are a carnal or fake Christian. But we have limited knowledge. It's interesting, two different study Bibles that I enjoy using. One of the study Bibles in the notes said, um, this passage is certainly talking about a backslidden Christian. And then the other study Bible says, no, this passage is, is only talking about a fake or a false Christian. You know what I believe? Yes. Both. <laughs> this could be carnal Christians and or it could be a fake Christian. And in the beginning or in the, in the process, we don't always know. We don't have to know. Because you know who knows? Jesus. Jesus is the perfect and infallible judge. He does know. We see, um, look with me in 1 Timothy 1, 15. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. In the study Bible where the, the commentator says, you know, no, this is certainly talking about um, fake, you know, Christians. He really hones in on the use of the word uh, sinner in James 5, 20, where it says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And he really hones in on that and shows how, you know, through, throughout the New Testament, that term is used uh, for unbelievers. But notice how it's used and how Paul uses it in James 1 in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, same, same Greek word, of whom I am the foremost. 
Paul doesn't say, I was the foremost sinner. Now, certainly, I'm, I'm sure he has in mind all the persecution of the church and everything that he did before salvation, but Paul still has a very clear reality that even though he's an apostle and he's been converted in a miraculous way, he still has the understanding, I am a sinner. I'm redeemed, but I'm a redeemed sinner. So I think certainly there's biblical support that as we pursue people, they may be carnal Christians or they may be fake Christians. 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul said, I am the very least of all the saints. So if, if it's a fake Christian that we're pursuing then our prayer, and, and again, we, we won't always know for sure if it's a fake Christian or not, but as we pray, we can say, Lord, if this person's genuinely not saved, may the final result be redemption, that they would come to know Christ as I pursue and as I pray and as I try to meet you know, with this individual. But yet, Lord, if this is a carnal Christian and truly belongs to you and is a child of God, Lord, may the result be restoration to walk with you. So both redemption and restoration are possible as we pursue those who are wandering and straying from the truth. Jesus is the infallible judge in Matthew 17, verses 15 through 17, says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Why does he use that analogy? Are we fearful of sheep most of the time? If we go to a petting zoo and there are sheep, do we tell our kids, be, be careful now, be careful. Don't get too close to the sheep. They're ferocious. No. I mean, sheep are kind of silly animals and they're not real smart. Um, so we, oftentimes the analogy, even in Scripture, is you know, sheep and, and wolves. And so the, these false prophets come in sheep's clothing. So those who initially are around these false prophets, some of them didn't know right away and couldn't know right away, are they, are they false prophets? Well, they came in sheep's clothing. But Jesus warns and says, he, he says that, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now a wolf, if, if, and wolves, plural, if we're near them, we say, back, okay, back, back away. Kids, don't get close. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 7 says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So over a longer period of time, oftentimes it does become more clear. Is the person a carnal Christian? Are they experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Are they experiencing the discipline of God? Or are they just going further and further into sin and this is becoming a pattern and a habit and a lifestyle that they are wandering further and further from the truth and their fruits are giving more and more evidence that it's very likely they, are, they were fake Christians and never converted at all. So, Verse 17 says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Some even deceive themselves into believing that, yeah, I must be, I must be a Christian because I come to church. I must be a Christian because I was born into kind of Christianity and I've, I've just been in it. Deceiving themselves as hearers only. Luke 6.46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So Jesus is the infallible judge. He never makes a mistake. He does know automatically who belongs to him and who doesn't. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus clearly acknowledged that there would be many spiritually active people who will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. James 7, 21 through 23, we read this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I knew you for a time, but I don't know you anymore. Jesus says, no, I never knew you. Indicating you were never my children. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 13, 36 through 43. I'd like you to look at this. We're going to examine this here in a few minutes a little in more detail, but I want to read the passage first. So Matthew 13, 36 through 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. This is Jesus. He left the crowds and went into his house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Often, many of us may remember this parable as the wheat and the tares. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. Now this is important that we, that we don't... Um, Interpret this as only the church. Because Christ says clearly, the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Verse 41 starts with who? Who does what? Son of man, Jesus. As the infallible judge, he sends angels. We see this in verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus won't get it wrong. None of the angels will get anything wrong. There won't be any appeals. There's not going to be a Supreme Court in heaven where people appeal their case and say, no, I think you got it wrong, God. No, Jesus is the infallible judge. He knows who belongs to him. We have limited knowledge. Jesus doesn't. Luke 8, 4 through 15. As we see Luke's account of this same parable... It's important to understand that what appears to be spiritual fruit is not always abiding fruit. 
what appears to be spiritual fruit is not always abiding fruit. Look with me, please, in Luke chapter 8 and verses 4 through 15. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. The birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now notice verse 9 as Jesus gives an an explanation of this parable in verse 9 of Luke 8. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path, so this is the first group, the ones along the path are those who have heard, so they've, they've been exposed to the gospel. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. You'll see a little bit further in your handout, I believe, there's some descriptions that one commentator used, and I felt like were, were helpful. So one commentator would call these, the ones along the path, as those with hard hearts. Those with hard hearts. They've expo- been exposed to the gospel, they've heard the gospel, but yet the seed fell on a hard heart, was trampled. Uh, and by the influence of Satan, they did not accept, and they were not saved. Then we see the second group in verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. So The commentator called this, those, the ones on the rock are those with shallow hearts. With shallow hearts. How many of you have uh, walked up Stone Mountain? You've gone up the, or, been, or been to the top. Maybe you've taken the, the ride, but you've been to the top. So it's interesting. Next time you go to Stone Mountain and you either walk, hike up, or you take the, the whatever it's called, gondola or whatever up. Uh, that's not gondola. Anyway, you take the thing up, tram. On top of Stone Mountain, you'll notice in some of the cracks of the mountain, there's some grass and weeds growing in some of the cracks. But I don't think you're ever going to see a Stone Mountain employee up there with a a, a snapper push mower cutting grass because there's not going to be enough to cut. It's shallow. There's some areas where some soil has gathered and and the seeds will grow for a little bit, but it's not going to take root. In Matthew's account, it's interesting. Notice how Matthew talks about this group of people in Matthew 13. I'll just read it, Matthew 13, 5 and 6. It says, Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. So there is, it shows that there, there's some, you know, there's some acceptance here. There's some soil. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. 
also in Matthew 13, but verses 20 and 21, it says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and he immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures how long? You see that? For a while. Actually, I told you that I was going to read it to you. Here I'm asking you to, maybe you're not even there. So yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. So for those of us who are watching, the gospel seed is planted. This individual that would have a shallow heart may receive it with joy. Oh, goodness, this is amazing, this gospel message. And, 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 and endures for a while. As that person then begins to wander from the faith... We who, who have limited knowledge, it's impossible for us to know sometimes, is that person a carnal Christian and is going through a season of, of much temptation and he's giving in, or is that person a fake Christian has never been saved? We learn this from the parable of the seeds and the sower. We come across another group in Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. So there may be what appears to be a little bit of fruit, but it doesn't mature. It's not an abiding fruit. It's an infested heart. This type of person allows the cares, the riches, and pleasures of life to choke out the gospel seed. Matthew 13, in, in, in Matthew's account of the same parable, says it this way, verse 22, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But then we come to the last group in Luke 8, verse 15. So Luke 8, verse 15, it says, And for that, as for that, in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And bear fruit with patience. I think it's important to, to see that as part of the phrase there. That's important that bears fruit. It doesn't happen sometimes all at once. It doesn't happen like, wow, look at that individual who's gotten saved and all the fruit they're bearing. But bears fruit with patience is growing process of sanctification falls but as a just man Proverbs says he gets up again and and grows some more and maybe falls back some but then he's he's rebuked and challenged and encouraged by scripture and he gets up again and he continues to go and he's growing so we we see this last group as those with fertile hearts Matthew 13 in his account of this says other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain some a hundredfold some 60, some 30. Jesus never says that we should compare those with 30 to the ones with 100 and shame in any way or exalt in any greater way those that have 100. We shouldn't shame those who bear fruit you know, 30-fold, and we shouldn't exalt in just this greater way those who bear fruit 100-fold. Jesus gives the capability and, the, and the, the ability and through the Holy Spirit to bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But the importance is that all of them are bearing fruit and abiding fruit for Christ's glory.
Now, as we look through this this seed, it's interesting to note that there are times when all four soils or all four types of hearts, there's times when all four types are represented in the visible church. Maybe in a gathering like One Hope Church. Maybe in a group like Gospel Hope Church. Maybe in an area or in a, in a church like uh, Woodstock City Church or First Baptist of Woodstock or Lebanon. There are times when people will be among us who hear and are exposed to the word, but their hearts are hard. It's not taking any root at all. There will be others who, they're shallow hearts. They, they seem to receive it. There seems to be a little bit of fruit, but then when testing comes, that's it. Then there are, there are others who have infested hearts, and they too show some initial signs of growth and of, of the gospel, but yet the cares and the riches and the pleasures of the world choke out the gospel seed. It never takes full root, and they're never genuine believers. And then we have those with fertile hearts, those who are children of God, those who are growing and who do bear fruit. So with our limited knowledge, we will not always know who among us, as James says, is displaying a hard heart, or, or is it a shallow heart, or is it an infested heart, or maybe even a fertile heart, but yet they're, they're carnal for a time. We, we have limited knowledge. Jesus knew and even called out that Judas didn't belong to him. Judas would go on to betray Jesus Christ and then would commit suicide, would, would bring himself to his own destruction and commit suicide. In the same group, Peter also denied Christ three times. But yet Peter was restored, and Jesus challenged him and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, yes, yes, yes. And, and Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So you see both in Judas and Peter, Judas, who for a time appeared, he walked with the disciples, so much so that when Jesus said that one of them would betray him, the disciples begin to ask each other, is it I? And you can just imagine the murmuring, well, I mean, who, who would it be? They didn't all immediately, the other 11 didn't immediately go, I knew it all along. I knew that Judas was a snake. No. Because apparently there were times where Judas maybe showed some signs, as we see, of a shallow heart, an infested heart, but some, some initial signs of gospel growth. Peter, on the other hand, who was a follower of Christ, and we, you know, by what we see in Scripture, we know for sure that he was a genuine follower and disciple of Christ, but in a weak point of his life, vehemently, three times, says, no, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. No, I don't know him but then was restored as Jesus himself around a fire and then began to walk with Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter was restored and used in a phenomenal way for God's glory. 2 Timothy 4.10 tells us of Demas. At one point, Demas was a co-worker to Paul in the ministry, but it says in 2 Timothy 4.10 that he fell in, in love with this present world. It seems that Demas had an infested heart, fell in love with this present world, and 
2 Timothy 4.10 says, and deserted me, Paul says. I can't say with absolute certainty, but we don't see anywhere else in Scripture that indicates that Demas was restored. So it's very possible that Demas, although a co-worker for a time, but because of the love for the world and deserted in Paul in ministry, it could be that Demas was never a genuine believer. But yet then we have, in contrast, we have John Mark. John Mark was who we often call Mark, was the writer of the Gospel of Mark, and he is with Barnabas and Paul as they're on a missionary journey. But Mark, too, comes to a point where he's like, no, 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 this, this is too much for me. I'm going back to Jerusalem. I, I, I'm, I'm done. They had been in Cyprus. Scripture only gives indication in Acts 13 that there, there may have been more, but the, the passage only accounts for one person who was converted during that specific visit of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark in Cyprus, but yet a fierce opposition, spiritually dark opposition to the gospel. And it may be that John Mark said, boy, (laughs) I didn't sign up for this. I'm going back to Jerusalem. But later in the New Testament, Philemon 1.24, Paul calls John Mark a fellow worker. And then even requested that Timothy have Mark accompany him and bring Mark with him. And and Paul says, because he, he or Mark is helpful to me in my ministry. So those who were watching on, who saw Demas desert them, but also saw John Mark in, in a similar way kind of desert them, initially, like us with limited knowledge, may not have been able to say, oh, Demas is for sure a fake Christian and Mark is this or that. But for both, there would have been a responsibility. We need to pursue him. We need to pursue Demas. We need to pursue John Mark. And do the very best we can to to bring them back, either one to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ or a restoration of fellowship. Brings us to the second question, Well, well, who needs to do that? Who needs to do this type of pursuing? Who should be the messengers of reconciliation? James, I think, gives a good answer. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers. He doesn't say my fellow elders. He doesn't say, you know, the, the main leaders of the church. He says, no, my brothers. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's very easy to give excuses for not pursuing someone who's straying from the faith. I just don't don't have enough time. I mean, there's so many things. I just, I don't have time. I I wish that I could help so-and-so, but I, I just don't have time to pursue you know, that brother or sister or though that person who was among us and is now straying and wandering from the I just don't have time. Or it may be you feel and, and even tell yourself, I, I'm just not spiritually prepared. Who, who am I? Who am I to pursue this person? Because I'm, I'm a sinner too and I have difficulties. And so, I mean, how can I be right in pursuing this person? Well, a good answer to that was get right. You don't have to be, you know, the top 100 Christians of the world. Just do your best and repent any unresolved sin. And as you are growing, still pursue. 
and be open and honest. And, and you can even tell the individual, listen, I don't have this all figured out. I'm not perfect. I have not arrived in my spiritual faith. But as I can, I'm noticing that you're wandering from the faith in this area. You're straying from the truth in this area. And I'm concerned for you because I love you in Christ. And I want to help you in any way that I can. But yet often excuses, I just don't feel spiritually prepared. Another excuse is, I don't think it's my responsibility. The pastor should do that, and, or, or deacon so-and-so should do that, or such, you know, that Sunday school teacher. They're the ones. They're the ones that need to do. But yet James, he says, brothers, someone, him, whoever, those are the terms he uses for those who should be messengers of reconciliation. And you may even say, well, I, I just don't know the person well enough. I mean, we don't have that type of relationship. We'll work to get to know them. Or if someone who does know them spiritually you know, well and is spiritually mature, then go with that individual. Say, we, we've come together because we both love you and we're both very concerned and we want to help you in any way we can. There's many exhortations throughout the New Testament of, that we are definitely to pursue someone who's straying from the faith. Consider Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. In Colossians, we see a, a challenge. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, I'm sorry, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you're still not convinced, then consider 2 Thessalonians 3, 13-15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. But notice verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. If I hadn't read verse 15... It would be easy to say, oh, I can do that, Pastor. I can note somebody who's doing wrong, and I'm just not going to have anything to do with them. But prior to that, coming to that step, Paul says you need to warn him, not as an enemy, but as a brother. It's our responsibility and privilege to bring the message of reconciliation. Now, I'd like all of you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 14 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. 
Oftentimes when we read through this passage, and I think the primary context is in the, the idea of gospel and of salvation, but certainly reconciliation involves what we're talking about here in James of pursuing either carnal or fake Christians. Notice in 2 Corinthians five, fourteen. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Many of the excuses that we use and think of not pursuing someone else is because we're still tempted and our tendency still is to live for me. This is uncomfortable for me. I don't feel like I'm ready to do that. So I'm, we're living for ourselves. And Paul says, the more that I think about the gospel and everything that Christ did for me and the more that I grow in my relationship with Christ, I will understand and be ready not to live for me, but to live for him who died for me. Then we see verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. That's a good standard for us to look at. Okay, who should we pursue? Well, the Bible tells us if anybody is in Christ, they are a new creation. So there, there should be at some point... There should be some spiritual fruit. It may not you know, sprout up with a bunch of flowers and fruit immediately, but as we walk alongside of new Christians or those who have shown some receptiveness to the gospel, there should at some point be some fruit shown. Because the gospel it tells if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled who to himself? Us. Now notice the second usage of us. And gave to who the ministry of reconciliation? We have been reconciled. We've also been given the privilege but the responsibility to be messengers of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through who? Us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's clear. We're to be messengers, every one of us who knows Christ as our Savior, we're to be messengers of reconciliation. In high school, I played, the, we were a small Christian school, which meant any male uh, student who could breathe usually made whatever team they tried out for. So we were always trying to recruit. You know, anybody who showed up at school on the first day, we're like, oh, you know, do you play sports? Well, not much. Well, you are this year. <laughs> we need you. Tryouts are such and such a date. So we needed everybody to play the whole season. And there was one individual uh, that we, we were in high school throughout the whole time together. And uh, it was a good Georgia name. His, uh, his nickname was Bubba. <laughs> Bubba. 
And Bubba was a good basketball player. Bubba was not the best student. So as Bubba went through the school year and as we started basketball, he would normally start off okay in his grades, but about halfway through the season, Bubba would get tired. Bubba would love to skate. He loved to play basketball. He did all these things, but he didn't really like to study a whole lot. But we knew about halfway through, if Bubba didn't get his act together, Bubba wouldn't stay on the team and that would hurt the whole team. So you know what we did? I remember talking as I was a messenger of reconciliation to Bubba. I remember going to Bubba and saying, listen up, Bubba. You have got to study, man, because we need you on the team. We don't want to lose games because you end up getting kicked off the team because of your grades. So Bubba, how can I help you? Do you have your homework for tonight? Do you have it written down? Do you have your books? Are you taking them home? Do you know there's a test tomorrow? Bubba, get with it, man. We need you on the team. What was I doing? In a secular, non-spiritual way, I was imploring. I was being a messenger, trying to reconcile him to the rest of the team and keep him together with us. Spiritually, we should do the same thing. Not because I'm so great and because I'm such a spiritual leader, but because we're on the same team, we serve the same Father, and so then that helps me to look at anyone among us who's straying from the truth, who's wandering from the truth, and go after them in love and say, listen, I implore you. I want to help you. I've been helped before. I'm sure there's going to be times where I'll need to be helped again, but right now I want to help you in any way that I can. What are the possible outcomes? Let's close as we look at what are, the, what are the possibilities of those that we pursue? Well, James 5, 19 and 20 again, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's important that we recognize, first of all, that spiritual death is a possibility. If someone who has a shallow heart has shown some initial receptiveness to the gospel, they're wandering from the truth, we don't know that. Jesus is the infallible judge, but we can see, boy, they they seem to be straying from the truth, from biblical truth. And we need to be aware that that could mean for that person eternal destruction if they never have a genuine conversion in Christ. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. In essence, John is saying, and remember, John lived through the experience of Judas. Basically, he was saying, sometimes it will come to a point where it, it will be clear that an individual was never a child of God, because of how they left the faith. Acts 1, 16 through 20, in talking about Judas, it says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the Mount of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. What does that mean? He was active. I mean, he, he gave some food out. He collected the, 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 the extra food in the baskets. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He walked with Jesus as the other disciples did. So he had a part in a way in that ministry. Not that he was a true follower or believer, 
but he was active in some way in that ministry. But we see in Acts, he was a lot of the share in the ministry, but then it says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. So not only physical destruction, but Judas certainly ushered in eternal destruction. Became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. Verse 25, the last part of Acts 1, verse 25 says, Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It's sobering to be reminded that that is one of the possible outcomes for those who are straying and wandering from the truth. Second possible outcome is spiritual discipline. Ananias and Sapphira uh, were disciplined by God because they, they lied about a gift to the church and they lied to the Holy Spirit. Some in the Corinthian church, because they were taking the Lord's Supper unworthily, said that they had become ill, and some even had died as a result of spiritual discipline. We've already seen in Hebrews twelve six, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. But thankfully, another consequence is something that, and that we're praying for a result is spiritual deliverance. James five nineteen and 20 my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you've spent much time reading the book of Galatians, Paul is used by the Holy Spirit to warn the Galatians, the believers in Galatia, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the law. Don't look again to circumcision. Circumcision is useless. You are circumcised spiritually in Christ. So the Lord used Paul to do exactly what James is saying. Some of those in, in Galatia were, were kind of wondering. They were starting to go back to some of those, those law-based truths. And Paul says, no, no, this is the truth. Look back to Christ. Christ is enough. So in God's perfect, in his sovereignty, but also in his love, he used Paul and he wants to use you and he wants to use me to, as a way to, to preserve even many of his children. As we call and as we pursue and as we love and as we pray, that's one of the means that God uses to preserve his children as we pursue others and offer spiritual deliverance. A fake Christian who sought after, presented the gospel of the, tr of, uh, the truth of the gospel once again, who repents and accepts in faith, well, he's saved from eternal destruction. A carnal Christian who sought after, who repents, then is restored to a walk in Christ. And as messengers of, re of reconciliation, we are not, unfortunately, like the quarterback, to walk away and take a sip of water, but we are to pursue in love for Christ.